0: permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. Be the one who nurtures and builds. Be the one who has an understanding and a forgiving heart. One who looks for the best in people. Leave people better than you found them. As we reflect this morning on the goodness of God and we reflect on what He calls us to do and be for others, I think we realize that at times we fall woefully short. In our haste to try and better people's situations and improve their lives, we can sometimes lose the tactfulness with which we are to speak and end up saying something that makes the situation worse rather than better. Perhaps at other times we get so tired and so exhausted from trying over and over again with seemingly no results that we just end up losing the drive to keep pushing. For whatever reason, we at times fail to be that person who nurtures and who builds, and we instead end up destroying, we end up breaking people further. Rather than being the people with understanding and forgiving hearts, we end up being prone to misunderstanding and being vindictive. And we certainly understand that's not how Christ calls us to be. In this time of reflection this morning, we want to talk about Jesus as the restorer, as the restorer. Uh, Generally, when we hear that word, we may be thinking of people who take old cars and make them work the way that they used to, or at least look the way they used to. And that's an incredible work. You will find with people who do that, that this can take upwards of hundreds of hours, depending on available time and the resources that are needed, the parts that are needed. It's an incredible process and it's so fascinating. But I think any of them would tell you, especially if they're a Christian, that it is so much harder to restore a person to their original condition When you have a person who's been so joyful and so so happy to be alive, who goes through great deals of hardship and toil, it's very hard for them to be restored to this former point of joy and jubilance that they once had. And yet what I find when I study scripture, and especially in Mark chapter 5, go ahead and turn there, is that Jesus is the only person who always left people better than he found them. Of course, there are things for the recipient of his grace to do, and that's to be certainly understood. But even if someone hears what he says and doesn't listen to him, we can rest assured that that person is benefited from having been in the presence of Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend some time talking about. A lot happens in Mark chapter 5, doesn't it? We first find when Jesus steps off of the boat to the land of the Gerasenes, we find that there's a man who's been possessed by a demon and we find that he helps that man and he heals that man. It's an incredible work. After that, he chooses to be interrupted and there's a woman who touches the hem of his garment to be healed of, his, of her years of, of, of having been suffering an ailment. And then after this, he goes to Jairus' house and heals his sick daughter, his dead daughter. We find Jesus restore the lives and the hope of these three individuals. And throughout each of these accounts found in Mark 5, there are a few things that are present. Each account in Mark 5, there is first a person to help. There's a person to help. That is that there are certainly people who are enduring great and terrible afflictions, but that Jesus is able to see past the affliction. He sees the person behind the affliction. He sees the person suffering that hurt and sees what he can do for that person. Second, there's a problem to fix. There's a situation that needs to be mended, an affliction that needs to be remedied. We see Jesus deal with those quickly and effectively in this passage. And finally, he always gives a purpose. There's a purpose to give. There are several times when we can come into contact with the grace of God that we have our own engineered idea of how how we're going to thank him. Well, Lord, I am so excited to serve you. I'm going to do this and Jesus instead says, no, how about try doing this? We find that there are these expressed ways in which people are able to, are able to give their thanks to God and sometimes it's not the way that we expect. It's in these three, the, these three ideas, these three concepts that we'll be centering in on each of these three accounts in brief detail. So let's start then with the possessed man. In verses one through 20, the first account given in Mark chapter five, the possessed man. What do we know about him? What person was it that Jesus helped? Who was it um, to whom Jesus came to their aid? In verse two, we find that this is a man who had an unclean spirit, a person who was demonically possessed. And in verse four, we find that every chain that that was attempted to be used to bind this man could just easily be broken because of his inhuman strength that had been acquired from this demonic possession. He could not be subdued. And in verse five, we find that he's a victim of emotional and physical torment. We find that he, that he at night wails aloud, cries aloud, cuts himself with stones. It's, it's a distressing scene. Those three things are certainly part of what Jesus saw. We can be certain of that. This is certainly the reputation that he had. And here's what Jesus ultimately saw. He saw a man enslaved by these demonic spirits who was in need of his help an enslaved man in need of help. And how did Jesus proceed to then fix that problem? What did he do about that? that that's great, we, we know this person who is dealing with this great hurt, this great harm, but what exactly did he do to remedy that? Well, first we see that he commands the demons to leave the man in verse eight. We see there that he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. It's not a suggestion, it's a command, it's an imperative. It's something that the demons must do regardless of what they would otherwise will. And he makes the demons cower. Think about all the fear, all the fear that these demons, through what they were doing to this man, had instilled in in the surrounding people. And now the demons are cowering. In verse 10 in the ESV, it says that the demons begged him earnestly to not send them out of the country. In verse 11, there's this herd of pigs, and in verse 12, they beg him to go into the pigs. They are faced faced with the power of God, and they know that they need to submit to him. And what we find in verse 13 is that Jesus gives them permission to enter this herd of pigs, and and they and all of them, numbering about two thousand, verse thirteen says, rushed down into the steep into the sea and drowned there. He gave them permission, and so ultimately, what did Jesus do to fix this problem that this man was suffering? He displayed his authority over the demons. His authority was the answer. His authority was the answer to this problem that he was going through. And so then we find a purpose that Jesus gave to the man, something for the man to do. You see, in verse 15, he was so happy to be finally back in his right mind. It says that people are seeing him in this way and there's fear, there's this amazement. They haven't seen him like this in so long. And the man is so happy that he wants to embark on the journey with Jesus. He wants to come with him. That's not the plan that Jesus had, though. The first thing that Jesus told him is to go home. To go home. Sometimes when we have people who are baptized into Christ, we find that there's this immediate evangelistic desire to go to to foreign places and to help. And let me say very clearly, there is room and there is need for that. I'm not discouraging those great works. At the same time, there are are very often people in your own home, people in your own family, people who are your friends at your schools and your workplaces who need you. It may seem odd to consider, but sometimes I think we we can look so far out into the rest of the world that we forget those near us who have not heard and received the gospel. He first tells this man to go home He then says to tell his friends how much the Lord has done for him. I don't picture this as a syllogistic defense of the gospel, by any means. I don't picture this as a formal argument. But I do still see proof being given that God is working and God is active. And I see proof that Jesus has been active in this man's life. And that's what he would be able to share with these people he's close with. And what happens next is he says to tell them how he has had mercy on you. Tell them of the Lord's compassion upon you today. Tell them of what God has done for you in this moment. So ultimately, what does the purpose boil down to? It boils down to this. Sometimes the right thing to do is to stay and glorify God where you are. Once again, let me be very clear. I'm not dismissing the works that happen and going to to other countries, going to other states. I'm not dismissing that. But at the same time, let's not neglect those who are closest to us at the same time. Stay and glorify God where you are. But this is only the first of three. We do find the beginning of the story with Jairus coming to Jesus, but there's an interruption that takes place. And let me make clear, Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. He allows himself to be stopped on his current mission and engage in a new one. We find this ailing woman, and who exactly was she? What person did Jesus help in this case? Well, we find in verse 25, it's a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And despite going to all these different physicians, nobody was really helping her. The, the text says in verse 26 that no, none of these physicians were actually making the problem better. They were making it worse. She had been enduring this in a hopeless situation because there was just nothing that could be done for her apparently. But let's also note this repercussion. She was unclean per Mosaic law. Her cutting herself off from society, this was something that the Mosaic Law commanded her to do, but we can rest assured, knowing, knowing what happens in other stories, that, that the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders during this time would have just eaten that up. They would have counted this as a level of superiority they'd have over this woman who was in need. She was unclean. And once again, we know that these three things are certainly what Jesus saw. And these are the things that he knew of her. But here's what was most emphasized. He ultimately saw a distressed woman in need of his help. A distressed woman in need of his help. She was sick and nobody was helping her. But as we find in a moment, Jesus would be willing to help her. How did Jesus proceed to fix that issue? What did he do? Well, we first find that he healed the woman with immediate results. It says in verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. How are you saying that Jesus healed her even though she was the one who reached out? Well, it was Jesus' power that did it, right? And so as far as I'm concerned, he's the one who did it, but we'll talk about her role in that in a moment. And let's also point out that this had immediate results after when we're talking to our religious friends who believe that the, that the age of, say, de, uh, de, demonic, I'm so sorry, de, de, <laughs> demonic possession, say that five times fast, right? Demonic possession, when they say that that time has not passed, when they say that the age of the miraculous has not passed, they'll often refer to videos and clips of these types of things still happening and saying, well, this person was miraculously healed look at the theatrics that take place on these stages. and That's really what they are, it's, it's theater. I've, I remember one video in particular, I'm seeing this, this man who, and there are these two guys bringing this woman up over and over again and he's pushing her down, she's falling and coming right back up, getting pushed down and it's just ridiculous. It is absolute lunacy and that is what the world thinks miracles are. But what I see from Jesus is immediate results, no theatrics, it's just straight to the point, straight to the healing. He healed the woman of her disease with immediate results. And he then goes on to give her the opportunity to speak to him. In verse 30, we see that he perceives that power has gone out from him, power has left him, and he turns and says, who is it who touched me? The disciples are amazed by this. They're thinking, you see this whole crowd pressing in around you and you're asking who touched you? We don't know. But the woman comes forward and we see in verse 33, she comes in fear. She's trembling. She falls down before him and she tells him the whole truth. He gives her the opportunity to speak to him. She doesn't have to stand far off from him. She doesn't have to be cut off from people anymore. She gets to come and speak directly to the Son of God and tell him everything. And let me make clear also, this is information that he already knew. He already knew who it was. He wanted her to come speak to him, though. And what he then does in verse 34 is that he announces her cleanness to the entire crowd. Everyone knows that this woman is pronounced clean. But ultimately, he displays his authority over diseases. He displays his authority over diseases. And once again, just to reiterate, he does so with immediacy. What purpose then did Jesus give her? In verse 34, what purpose did Jesus give her? A few things. Number one, Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. How is this a purpose? I would say this is a reminder something for her to know. It is true, as we just saw in verse 29, that Jesus was ultimately the one responsible. But did this woman not reach out in faith? Did she not reach out knowing that Jesus had the ability to heal her? If she hadn't done so, I think we can know with a fair level of certainty she would not have been healed in this way. But because she reached out, knowing that only touching the hem of his garment would have been enough, Jesus was able to to do this work. He then tells her to go in peace. Go with a clean conscience. Go knowing that you are now okay. Go knowing that, that you are loved and that you're cherished. And go knowing that you will not be ridiculed or ostracized anymore. When he says to be healed of your disease, that's certainly an imperative. And that can seem confusing because, well, I thought she was already healed in verse 29. Well, here's the point. To all here who are questioning if she has been healed, she is healed because I just pronounced it. I just showed it. And to you, a woman who's been suffering for 12 years and who no doubt is suffering a lot of disbelief right now, and who's so excited that she can hardly believe it. You are indeed healed. Jesus makes that clear, makes it pronounced, makes it accentuated for her. Be healed of your disease. Ultimately, the point is this. Live in faith and thankfulness to God. Live in faith and thankfulness to God. Then we find the deceased girl. Once again, we note that Jesus allowed herself to be interrupted, but we, let's go back to verse 21 and see what happened here. What person was Jesus helping in, in this part of the, of, the, of the chapter? We find Jairus come forward and say that my little daughter is at the point of death, and this little daughter was the daughter of one of the rulers of the synagogue. And we see that this girl is at the point of death. When we compare with Matthew 9 and verse 18, we recognize that at the point of death and death, these might as well just be synonymous terms. In effect, it's the same thing. She's dead and I don't know what to do. Lord, my daughter is dead. And what we ultimately find is it's a helpless daughter in need of help who needs Jesus to come and help her and let's make sure that we make clear, this is a daughter. It's indeed true, it's a deceased girl, but the father has come forward, needing, and needing Jesus to do something, pleading with him to do something. How did Jesus proceed to fix it? What steps were taken to fix this? We've seen him deal with a, demon, with a, <laughs> with a demon-possessed man, and he was alive. We saw him um, help a girl who had been dealing with this ailment, but she was alive. How does he go on to raise someone from the dead? Well, first things first, he encourages the people to believe. After he heals the woman, these people come and tell Jairus, tell Jesus, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble this man anymore. Quit wasting his time. There's nothing to do for her. And what does Jesus say when he overhears this talk in the synagogue? He says, do not fear, only believe. When someone fully believes, there's no room for fear. There's no room for it. These, these are put as diametric opposites in this verse. And we also see that he reveals that this girl soul is very much alive. The girl is able to be to be revitalized. When he initially comes in, there's all this weeping and loud wailing. And sure, some of it must have been sincere, but another part of it, ceremonial, nothing really of value. And Jesus confronts it and says, why are you making so much commotion? The girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And the people laugh at him. We find in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 that we are to be informed Unlike those who, who grieve without hope, we are to know that when people are asleep that there's hope for them. Asleep being this common symbol, just meaning this common way of saying that they're dead, sure, but that their soul is ever much alive. And what Jesus proceeds to do is to say to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And what does it say in verse 42? And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years old. Immediately, here we see him display his authority even over death. What purpose does Jesus proceed to give? Well, let's first note that he gives no task to the little girl. Seems odd, but... We just recognize there was nothing for this little girl to do. But he does give a few things for the people around her to do. He strictly, he strictly charges them that no one should know what he just did. Some scholars would call this the messianic secret, that that's something exclusive to Mark. But what we find even in John chapter 7, for example, is Jesus saying that his time has not yet come. If this was too widely known, we can suppose that he would have been put to death far sooner than than what would have been needed for the plan to be fully realized. And so as such, he tells them, don't tell people yet. But what he does tell them is, give her something to eat. That seems so basic. This seems so simple. Why such a basic command? Well, the point is, well, okay, I did it. She's alive. Now take care of her. Something for us to think about. At the end of the day, the point is this. Respect his sovereignty. Respect his timing. And serve others in the meantime, even as you're trying to figure things out. So we spent some time talking through these, these accounts and talking through these people who were helped by Jesus' restorative power. And that's an amazing thing to study. However, I think there is one more consideration, one more person we need to talk about today, and it's you. You are in dire need of Jesus today. Whether it be that you have been someone who's been walking with him for a long time, or you're someone who has not even begun your journey, you need him. You need his restorative power. And certainly we've talked about the fact that the age of the miraculous has passed, but God's goodness has not passed and we know that the age of demons possessing people has passed, but God's grace has not passed. What person is it that Jesus wants to help? When he says that he wants to help you, what does that mean? It means that he wants to help a sinner. As Larry talked about this morning, we see in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we fall into this condition of accountability from that point onward where we, we are, it's on our permanent record unless we do something about it or rather submit to the person who already did do something about it. Doesn't John 8, 34 tell us that everyone who makes a practice of sin is a slave to sin? Sometimes it's possible for us to only look at ourselves as the sinner, only as the person who is, who is without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2 but what God sees, what Jesus sees, is a forgivable person. You may find in the Evangelism and Sync Center that we have out there, the Evangelism Resource Center, there's one bulletin that's out there from time to time called Can God Really Forgive Me? Now, let me sum up the point of that article, even though it is very important to read, very good to read. Let me sum it up in one word Yes. Yes, He can. What has He done then to fix this problem that we have of sin? He died for you. God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Did He come into this world to condemn it? No, He came into the world so that it might be saved through Him. And here again, He displays His authority over death. He rose again. That's the gospel. He displays His authority over death again. And so, what purpose has He given you? He wants you to believe in Him, first of all. We find in John 20 that these things that have been written about Him, and truly, in all the Gospels, these things that have been written about Him, it's so that we may believe and have life in His name. It's for me, it's for you. We're to be baptized for the remission of our sins in obedience to that. It's the exact wording in Acts 2.38, to be baptized for the remission of our sins. And in Acts 22 and verse 16, the same message, washing away your sins, calling on his name. We're to live faithfully as an added member of Christ's church. This number unto which we are added is Christ's number, Acts 2.47 would teach us. And it's, it's it's a body that was purchased with Christ's own blood. Acts 20 and verse 28. The point of it is, no matter who you are, Surrender to his lordship. Surrender to his lordship. Wherever you are in that, I promise every single one of us in this room can further surrender to Christ's lordship in some way or another. Your question today is just this. What is the way that I can better surrender? When we think about Jesus Christ as the restorer, I think it's very important for us to know that restoration does take place when we have individuals like Josiah who are willing to restore things to, God or to God's original plan. But we also have Jesus, who comes in and makes people's lives better, who restores them to their former state and allows them to see the grace of God. Whatever your need is today, if you need the prayers of the church, if you need to come and be baptized for the remission of your sins, or if you just need to study with us, to talk to us through, through some questions that you're having, we would love to do whatever we can for you. Make your need known now as we stand and sing. Mark chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 19. This is page 840 in the Red Pubac Bibles.